All right, continuing tonight, Revelation chapter 5 with our overview of the book here as we get ready to wrap up. This is a door, a throne, and the Lamb that was slain, part 2. In the beginning of the apocalypsis of the revelation of Jesus Christ, we see Christ come to His servant John as He's in exile on Patmos and He begins to speak to him to record what must take place both now and that which is to come to write down what he hears and he sees. And Jesus takes a pause at the beginning of some of the most anticipated scriptural knowledge in all of the first century. I mean, after all, this is what the apostles were specifically asking about in Matthew chapter 24. Lord, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And here before this such anticipated information is delivered, Christ pauses to speak to His heart. He pauses to speak to His bride and He dictates the epistles of Christ to the seven churches that are in Asia, what is today modern Turkey. And then He begins to move towards the fullness of the revelation that is to come. John sees a door standing open in heaven. And in a very small frame of time, that exists between the beginning of Revelation chapter 4 and what we see in Revelation chapter 6, we see John operating in the heavenly realm in as much as you can call it in the eternal state, real time. That is to say, events that were occurring presently for him and were recorded as being present. After all, this is how he sees the vision that is to come, but yet it's not future events that are apart from his current time frame. It is a fascinating little piece of study. He sees a throne. A throne that is defined not by its own glory and does not define the glory of Him who sits on it, but instead is defined by the glory of Him who sits on it. And it is a throne. You know, it's interesting, side note. I'd say it's not in the notes, but none of it's in the notes tonight, so <laughs> whatever. Uh, if, if, you go, um, if you go to Capernaum um, at, the, at the end of the Sea of Galilee, um, there, is a, um, there is a synagogue there that is a late first century synagogue that's built on the foundation stones and you know, we think of foundations today, we normally think of a port slab or a port perimeter foundation. You know, we're talking stones that are half of a normal wall height, tall, the part that's sticking out of the ground. There's a synagogue there that was built in the late first century um, that was built on the foundation stones of the synagogue that Christ did most of his preaching in. There were three little towns in that area. If you go up the hill, if you go up the hill, Onto um, up towards the Gullet Heights, then, then you will um, come across a couple more. And the ruins of those synagogues are, are sitting there empty. And, and um, it's not surprising um, that they are empty. These three synagogues that Christ did the majority of his preaching in, he himself cursed because they would not listen to the truth of God when it was in their very presence. But one of the interesting things about those synagogues is um, there, there's one that still stands the original up in the hills. Um, the one in Capernaum, they have a seat there that is known as the Moses seat. 
And anytime someone was going to read from the law, anytime they were going to read predominantly from the book of Moses, but not always, sometimes from the prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel, anytime someone was going to read from the law, they would sit in this seat. There was some, some formality to it. And so it's one of the few places, because it was in these synagogues, that Jesus and Capernaum specifically, that he was handed the scroll on the Sabbath and asked to read from Isaiah when he said, today this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. It was in this actual, it's like one of the only places that you can go to, to the museum where they, they pulled it out and placed it in the, in the National, <coughs> National Museum and go, look, this is the seat that Christ set on. And it's about as humble of a seat as they come. Capernaum was a fishing village. And this wasn't Jerusalem with everything plated in gold and cedar from Lebanon and inlays of ivory. Man, Capernaum was a fishing town. And they had them a little seat that was carved out of the same limestone that their houses and the mainstays on their docks and the walls of their synagogue were carved out of. You may have come humbly riding on the colt of a donkey. You may have been born in a manger. You may have sat on a rock pillar that's not as comfortable as most of the seats that we have at the, the bar stools in our houses. This throne is worthy of the glory of the one who sits on it. Pavement of stone, a crystal sea like sapphire, like emeralds surrounded by the rainbow, fire and lightning, and the voice of one looks like fire encapsulated in glass speaking with the sound of many waters. In chapter 5, verse 1, it is written, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written in and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or under the earth or on the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. Last week we took a brief look at this scroll as we were getting ready to move away into the sermon this week. And while the scroll is certainly not the focal point of what is going on, it is extremely important. And if you don't understand what's in the scroll, I would wager that you do not understand neither the depth of John's emotion nor of the glory of the one who is able to open it. Now the word in the Greek simply means scroll, a certificate, or a written document, but I think it's the same word that we get our word for Bible from. It's Biblion, and here it is in the hands of the Father seated upon the scroll. No one can open it. Sealed with seven seals. And of course, you have a scroll that's sealed with seven seals. Man, things sealed from top to bottom. You can't even get a peek on what's going on until all seven have been broken. There's a strong angel that cries out. Who can break the seals and open the scroll? Some have supposed it to be Gabriel. Since his name literally means the strength of God. Scripture doesn't tell us for sure, it would make sense since he was the one that sealed it up the last time it was sealed. John's response is highly emotional. This is a guy who's seen a lot. He's the last of the apostles that are still alive. All the rest are dead. All but Paul died of. Or no, all but, but uh, 
But John himself had died a violent death. John spent so much time in the Roman prison colony at Patmos that he most likely anybody else would wish they were dead. I'm sure he understood exactly what Paul meant when he said, for me to live is Christ, but to die would be gain. He's an old, old man. And yet, with all this man seen, and with all the depth of his faith, when the scroll can't be opened, he weeps loudly. Now, what would be in such a scroll that would cause John to weep in the way he does? There's a lot of popular understandings, but I think you've got to go directly to Daniel chapter 12 in verse 6 through 9 if you really want to see what this thing is. The last time we saw this scroll that is now being unsealed was at the event of its sealing. And at that point in time, a full 50% of it had been read. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 6 through 9, someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, this is Gabriel, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, and he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. And then when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, then all these things would be finished. I heard and I did not understand. And then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words that are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. They're sealed to the time of the end. They're sealed to the end of the age. They're sealed until the very age in which the apostles had thrust upon them and which we still live. This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. And he said, This duty has come upon us on whom the end of the ages has come. This is what's spoken of by the author of Hebrews when he said, Having made this sacrifice for sins once for all, he sat down until the very end of the ages. The scroll was sealed. And what's sealed inside of it? The question that was asked. Daniel said, Oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed to the time of the end. In the book of Daniel, you see a detailed exposition of the first three and a half years of the tribulation and the political rise of the Antichrist right until the moment of his death and false resurrection, at which point in time Satan enters him, and then after that he says, nope, no more. Daniel wants to know, we've just gotten to the good part. Have you ever seen a, 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 a two-part movie where part one was really nothing but two and a half hours of the setup for part two? I think that's probably kind of how Daniel felt. It's like right when you get to the end of what he's going to be shown is about the time that it was getting good. The scroll contains the fulfillment of God's end and His purpose for redemptive history. This is the rest of the story that when the apostles asked, Lord, what shall be the sign of Your coming at the end of the age? And He said, You have seen that it was written by the prophet Daniel. They're like, yeah, we know what's written in the prophet Daniel. What about the rest? What about the stuff that Daniel was so concerned about the outcome of these things? This is what lies in the scroll. 
This is why John weeps. Because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the answer to, Lord, what will be the sign of Your coming? It's funny, when we study prophecy today, especially apocalyptic prophecy, one of the things we want to, man, we get, you know, we make fun of the wall charts and stuff. Hey, I get it, man. Sometimes you got to diagram that stuff. It's hard to keep straight in your head. I don't think we ought to be nearly as fascinated as we are with it as we are, mainly because that's not what the apostles were fascinated with. Man, they have all this prophecy in Daniel about a lot. I mean, look, and it's there. And so God wants us to know it. We need to know it. Please don't hear me wrong. Like we said this morning, sometimes you got to tell them what you're not saying. Don't say it. I said that stuff's not important. It's in Scripture. It's important. Okay, I just want to make sure our focus is in the right place because those guys knew all what was going on in Daniel and they didn't come to him and go, hey, tell us more about this man of perdition. Tell us more about the spirit of lawlessness. Tell us more about, uh, you know, about these plagues. Tell us, no, they said, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, Christ is sitting right before them when he answers this. So the question that's being asked, I mean, he's like, well, you know, if they were talking about his physical coming, and at this point in time, they are still like way out of bounds on their theology about what's going to happen with the Holy Spirit and the whole church kingdom era thing. And so they, when they say, what is, the, what, what is the sign of your coming? If they meant physically, he would say, well, the sign would be that I'm sitting here talking to you. They're talking about him coming into his kingdom. And this is further evidenced by the fact that they tie this event to the end of the age. Right? This is it. We know, this coming, when, when you come, whatever that looks like. We know you're the Messiah. We've made the good confession. Whatever that looks like, it's going to bring the end of the age with it. And they want to know what it's going to look like when their Lord returns. They are looking for Him, which is exactly how He answers their question in Matthew 24. He says, Then you will see set in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. All this other stuff is just build up and travail and all that, but then you will see the sign of the Son of Man set in the heavens. Friends, no one can understand history apart from the redemptive plan of God. It is nonsense. It is nonsense. Friend, we are not even... In, when we're talking you know, in the last two... Sunday mornings about the, the nature of the fallen man taking um, what can clearly be perceived about God and then out of his ungodliness of character and heart acting in unrighteousness in order to suppress the truth. Okay, men in secular men aren't even wise enough to apply their own philosophies to history to be willing to accept in practice that if you don't remember it, it repeats itself. We're just erasing history today. And I'm not talking about just tearing down monuments. We've been doing it for years. We've just dumbed down what our people know about where we came from. And in doing so, we are dooming ourselves to repeat it. And that's just as secular of wisdom as it gets. We can't even get that part right. I'm telling you that no one can understand history. It makes no sense apart from the redemptive plan of God it is nonsense, which is why a guy named Rudolf Bultmann, who was a very famous early 20th century um, German theologian, not of the good kind, James. This guy, um, he was an existentialist to, to the extreme. He wasn't really so much concerned about the what's of Jesus, just the that's of Jesus. <coughs> as 
long as we could just barely confess that he existed historically at all, then that was enough. And this is really an existential idea. And if we can all just kind of get together and feel good about it, sing Kumbaya, then everything will be great. And so here's a guy that if there was ever a guy that, that, that claims to be a theologian, that does not have a good, solid grasp on what God is doing with his redemptive plan historically, not just in some kind of spiritualized existentialism. This guy's the example, and he said this. We cannot claim to know the end and goal of history. Therefore, the question of the meaning of history has become meaningless to theologians. I beg to differ. It is the history of angel and man in which the glory of God is being most clearly seen in the redemption of the cross of Jesus Christ. These are historical realities. You can't separate the spiritual events from the setting and context in which they happened. As a matter of fact, just throughout, and I, I won't soapbox here, um, even though the lack of notes might let me, but I won't. But I will say this. I mean, even if you just, even if you, there are so many prophecies about the coming of Christ that are so intertwined with each other in their historical context that if you deny the historical reality of these events, you might as well just take the whole thing to the woodshed. Not even to mention what that does to the infallibility of the Word of God. But even for self-consistency within the text. Man, you've got, if, when you look back to Daniel, man, when the, when the 70 weeks of Daniel are given, man, these things are anchored in these four kings that rise out of the earth, the historical manner of their rise, their decline, the historical manner of their fall, the way this is all being promoted by spiritual realities in heavenly places that are the real powers behind these empires. That's very specifically that the last of the four that is different than all the rest that is the Roman Empire, that is the one that tramples the ground of the temple, will be the same one that brings about the execution of the Messiah and will be the same one in its second form that is present at the coming of the man of lawlessness. Man, if you break the historical context and the historical reality of these things, all you end up with is basically existential tapioca pudding. Just nothing and John weeps because in real time what's in this scroll that cannot be opened is the very revelation of the coming of his Lord and he wants to know he's hungry to know I gotta tell you guys over the years studying this stuff there is definitely some times when um, you just want to just you know, pull your hair out and throw the marker and you run down dead ends and you can't, they turn out to be bad leads and, or, or you know it's going somewhere but you cannot figure out where it's going to go. I got to tell you, John's response has motivated me on more than one occasion. If the fact that he can't know what's in there causes him to weep in the midst of a heavenly scene standing before the throne, then there ought to be enough motivation for me to, to knuckle back down, pick your marker up off the floor and get back to digging to find out what, now that the scroll has been opened and its content revealed, what that content is. Well, if the scroll contains the revelation of Jesus Christ, then its focus is always going to bring us back 
to Jesus, which is exactly what it does, because here is John, and he's weeping over the fact that this scroll can't be opened. And one of the elders said to me in verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that no one can open the scroll and its seven seals. Man, you get three names for Christ here in rapid succession. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain. For between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here at the opening of this scroll that was sealed in the Old Testament and to be opened in the New, at the end of the very ages themselves, you see two references to the name of Christ that are pulled from the context of Daniel, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David that we spent quite a bit of time on here just not too long ago. The New Testament description is that of the lamb that was slain. And you could say a lot here. You could say a lot here. You can go back to prophecy as far as Genesis chapter 49 from Balaam. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down and he crouched as a lion. And as a lioness who dares rouse him, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He's called the root of David. As we noted before, he's David's root, not the other way around. Jesus said it about Abraham. He said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And the Pharisees laughed at him in scorn and said, this man's not even 40 years old and he claims to have known Abraham. And Jesus famously said, before Abraham was, I am. Say the exact same thing about King David. Before King David was, I am. David may have sprouted forth, but I am his root. In Isaiah chapter 11, Verses 1 through 10, but we may just we may just read right on through to chapter 12. Let's see. In Isaiah chapter 11, because he's speaking here, at this point in time, you've got a church. If y'all recall back to Romans chapter 10 and 11 with me, you've got a church that is predominantly made up of two groups of people. Predominantly what you've got is Jews and Hellenists. You've got Jews and, and Roman-cultured, Greek-speaking Gentiles. Now that's not to say there's not some stuff going on in Ethiopia. and saying that There is. And, that the, and Christianity is now spreading beyond the, the, the Mediterranean. But 
predominantly what you've got is Jews and a bunch of Hellenists. And the Hellenists are going to be real familiar with all of kind of, they didn't call it the New Testament at this point in time, but all the epistles of the apostles, they're going to be familiar with the lamb that was slain. But these Jews are going to be familiar with these Old Testament references to the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And this is critical for them because as we saw in Romans, Paul was having to explain in detail to the church at the time how the treatment for the people of God that were Jewish and the treatment for the people of God that were Gentile was going to be the same at the coming of Christ. I mean, this is why... Paul writes so much of what he does to the Thessalonians. This is why he writes so much of what he does to the Romans. He says, you understand that those that believe, believe. They've been called very specifically, predominantly you Gentile churches, to suffer not on behalf of Jewish believers, not on behalf of Jewish saints, but on behalf of the Jewish elect that are not yet believers, that they may be brought to salvation through the testimony of your suffering when they're provoked to jealousy. This is not a New Testament concept. Well, it is, but it start there. In Isaiah chapter 11, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. You know, this often gets quoted at Christmas and rightfully so. Any excuse to talk about Christ is great. But quoting this as though it applies to Christmas is like singing joy to the world as though it applies to Christmas. Not a Christmas carol. It's great to sing at Christmas. I love it. But not a Christmas carol, man. Joy to the world. Not about, not about the incarnation of Christ. About the second coming of Christ. So is this. Verse 5. Well, let's go back to verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be a belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. And they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. What you see here is the Jews that have been scattered abroad over the face of the earth being returned at Christ's coming to Jerusalem. A nation being born in a day. A nation that was cut to the heart when they looked and saw the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. A nation for whom in their weeping and mourning God opened a fountain for repentance and grace and put a new heart in them according to the prophet. He will rise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites shall obey them and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave His hand over the river with His scorching breath and strike into seven channels and He will lead people across in sandals. You know, nothing wrong with the greatest hits to her. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up out of the land of Egypt. And you will say in that day, man, chapter 11 and chapter 12 should not be two separate chapters. There is full continuity in the Hebrew. And you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid for the Lord God is my strength and my song. And He has become my salvation. And we sing about God being our strength and our song. Amen. It was written about the full consummation of that strength and salvation for His people at the coming of the King. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon His name, make known His deeds among the peoples, proclaim that His name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for He has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. Shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Amen. Split the eastern sky. Come in bloody from Basra right through the eastern gate of the temple and into the midst of His people. This is what John hopes in. And he knows how it's going to be accomplished. He is told specifically 
Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The way he is able to open the scroll is because he has conquered. Not because he will conquer in that day, though there is certainly a conquering coming. Actually, I don't, I don't know what you call that. A reckoning, I guess. Um, but it's not because he will conquer. It's because he has conquered. And remember... As much as the dispensationalists would like to, you cannot throw some concept of eternal future time here. This is specifically happening the after this of the dictation of the epistles of Christ and before the not yet that is to come. So right then, in late 1st century AD, they are in heaven saying you can open this thing up for these people to see because the end of the ages have come and the reason that you can open it is because you have conquered. How did he conquer? By ransoming himself a people for God and becoming the propitiation for their sins upon the cross. <laughs> Exactly the opposite way that anybody but God Himself would plan to do it. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He conquered by being sacrificed. We don't even have to leave the context of what's being said to note it. In verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign. He conquered by being slain. But not just by being slain. He conquered by being slain and then successfully using that lifeblood to ransom a people for God. And not just by being slain and successfully ransoming a people for God, but being able to take that people of as diverse a people as can ever possibly exist from every tribe, language, and nation. And He has made them into a kingdom and priests in order that they may reign. The author of Hebrews put it like this. He said, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He beat the one who had power over death with death itself. This is the manner of his conquering. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps, guess who? The ones that He's turning into a kingdom of priests. The offspring of Abraham. And therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus' humility in coming as our Savior validates Him in heaven to come as the conquering Messiah. 
having overcome sin and death, He is able to wield them according to the Father's purpose. And so they sing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to Him who sits on the throne in the Lamb. Be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. He is worthy. Amen. It's a good thing He is. Because it's going to require a worthy King for His people to be strengthened in sufficient manner to walk through the purpose of His will that the scroll contains. Heath, you want to pray for us, man?